This is the Education Gadfly Show. Just had to let go of RG3. It was hard, wasn't it? But I no. think it was the right decision. No, it was not. Totally right. It no, it was... wasn't hard for you. I really like the guy. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my special guest co-host, the Kirk Cousins of Education Policy, Lizette Morris. Hello, Mike. So Lizette is the executive director of the Ingenuity Project in Baltimore. We're going to hear all about that in a little bit, Lizette. But, you know, the Kirk Cousins thing is it makes sense because here he is. He is a star quarterback now for the Washington Redskins who are having actually a surprisingly good season. And yet he was he was not the starting quarterback right no. uh, at the beginning of the year. And so it's like, you you know, you're coming on the scene. You're you're kind of like, you know, you're, you're coming off the bench into the big time. You have been a listener of the Education Gadfly show for years. Yes. Uh, and now here you are on the show itself. Right. And, and sitting in this, you know, this incredible uh, little recording studio you have here. <laughs> <laughs> and thinking, wow, I thought it would be more impressive than this. Maybe, maybe just... I go back to the image I had on my head yeah, exactly. being on the show. Yeah, no. yeah, exactly. It doesn't really look like NPR, does really it? Really fancy no. gear. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't look fancy at all. Well, it's great to have you here. Thank you. Lizette. And uh, we are going to talk about your work that is, involves gifted and talented kids. But we are also going to talk about the week's news because, of course, there is a lot happening on that. So, Clara, let's play Pardon the Gadfly. Lizette, you work with high-achieving students in Baltimore through your organization, The Ingenuity Project. What do you think is the most promising method for identifying gifted and talented students? And, and Lizette, we should say this is an issue we care an awful lot about. And Checker Finn and Brandon Wright here have a new book out. And and they struggle with this question that, you know, when you start talking about, quote, gifted kids or gifted and talented kids, huge controversies and who yes. counts. Some people who want that to be a very uh, strict definition. Others who say every child is gifted in some way. Uh, those people probably are not parents. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> or maybe they are of special snowflakes. But what, what yes. do you think? Where, where do you come down on this? Wow. So this. This has been an issue of debate um, in our program for uh, a while. Um, I stepped into this role a year and a half ago. And of course, that was a good opportunity for everybody to kind of revisit this idea of who do we identify. And what do you guys do? Tell us just a little bit about engineering. Yeah, so we run a mid middle school and high school program for um, particularly STEM subjects. So okay. we, um, we recruit and identify students. We use multiple measures right now. Yep. Um, and we're in the process of changing what some of those measures and are. And this is Baltimore City. Yes, for so Baltimore City. Mostly, mostly low-income and minority kids? Well, or a mix right, in Baltimore. A mix, yeah. Very much a mix. Mm -hmm. um, our program actually, I think, is probably one of the most integrated um, areas in the city where yeah. you will find students who have many options of going to private schools and sending their kids off because they have financial means, mm -hmm. but decide to choose Baltimore City Public Schools. Yeah. And you have students who are the first generation in their family to go to college, all in one learning environment. You know, so a lot of people say if, if you just look at test scores, because we know we have this huge achievement gap, mm -hmm. uh, that in, inevitably you're going to end up identifying relatively few low income kids or, or kids of color. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that just perpetuates the gap in mm -hmm. some ways. And, and yet uh, we also can see that if, if you have other ways of screening, there are uh, plenty of low income and minority kids who have given the chance could excel in these kinds of programs. So, but, you know, so how, how do you find them? What else do you look at if it's not a test score? So our, our previous model for many years included a teacher recommendation. Yep. We had an ability, an achievement test. Uh, we also looked at report card grades. Um, we looked back just this summer at five years worth of our admissions data, mm -hmm. started to really look because we keep 
many of these students into the high school program. We looked at outcomes in their, you know, SAT, GPA, things like that. And what we noticed is that there was no correlation between the teacher recommendation Mm -hmm. and students' outcome Mm -hmm. and completion in the program. Well, that's interesting because I think it was just last week, Amber reported on a study where Mm -hmm. teachers uh, tended to uh, underestimate the talent of poor and minority kids at the high end of the achievement spectrum. And so uh, that that is clearly a big problem. So that's good. So you're going to get rid of those teacher recommendations. Sorry, teachers, you're out of the picture. We value your opinion, but but, uh, no, but well, it's hard. It's hard to standardize those things, of course, as well. The other thing that we found is that um, the student, the indicators in our admission process that mostly reflected in the success of students later on were the the assessments that were measuring things that the students were going to do in the future. Mm-hmm. So for example, for our high school program, we give an algebra assessment. Mm-hmm. We are a, we are a math, a, a pretty rigorous math and, and science program. Yeah. Students who succeeded already in algebra one had a very strong likelihood of being successful all the way yeah. through. So what you measure and then what what you're looking for and you yeah. know that they're going to need to do in the program is really important. Excellent. Okay. Clara, topic number two. Mike, your piece in the Hetchinger report suggested that ed reformers stop casting the debate in terms of good versus evil and that we should check our egos and our halos at the door. How come? Yeah, well, look, you know, this is something I've been really struggling with for a long time. And and some of this is is a little bit of a mea culpa. I mean, I certainly over the years have have been involved in these debates that sometimes get nasty, calling the teacher unions evil in various ways or coming mm-hmm. close to it, saying, oh, they're nothing but these greedy union bosses who are, uh, you know, just taking money from their members and stomping on the needs of kids. You know, all that kind of rhetoric, which I, I used to partake in. And I guess as I've been in this now, I've gotten older, I'm having, you know, getting getting ready to have a midlife crisis or something that, you know, it it just has become clear to me that uh, very few people in this debate, if any, uh, have uh, are out there for, you know, bad reasons or ulterior motives. Everybody is out there trying to make the system work better. A lot of the people that we view as our opponents in education reform are themselves stuck in a system that doesn't work and is broken and they are trying to fix it. Uh, so I just think it's it's important for us to step back. I think in, in any debate and particularly in America today with our level of political polarization, it's just always a good idea to refrain from villainizing uh, people that we disagree with. I also, and Liz, I'd be curious about this. You know, I, I do think there, of course, there's a moral component to some of these things and the, the cause of making our system more fair and equitable, but there is also just a big technocratic challenge, right? I mean, it is just hard to figure out uh, what works, uh, how to scale what works, how to make choices. Something like the Ingenuity Project, for example, you have to struggle with these questions in terms of who gets into the program, how to help it be most successful, what are the methods that you use. You know, some of this uh, comes down to values and, and equity and, and moral stuff. Some of it just comes down to how do we uh, get good research and then apply it and get better at what we're doing and get better technically at, at the work in hand. You know, in other words, what I've been trying to say is, it's not just like a religious fervor that we need in education mm-hmm. reform. We also need a commitment to science. Oh, yes. So my board is made up of several uh, scientists and re- researchers from Johns Hopkins University. And um, I am so 
honor to work with many of them because sometimes in the midst of what can be sometimes a very emotional and personal debate, um, there are many of my board members that will step back and say, let's look at the data. And I appreciate that because you're so right that we always continue to have to go back and and look at this because it can become very deeply personal for many of us. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially in the world of gifted education, like you got very personal in your, in your article and, and, you know, having children of my own, you realize that it is complex and you, you see the things you fight for for your own children and then you see the things you fight for 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 students who have different experiences and different right. home home lives than our own children do um and it it when we put all these labels on things i think that we that's when the debates start to you yeah. know pro pro charters anti charters mm-hmm. pro that you know it it does it starts to polarize in a way that um you know i i think what we offer is a solid instructional program yeah whether you want to call it gifted and talented or whether you know like who mm-hmm. we include in the program is very difficult to and is it it, it does get very personal but we have yeah. to continue to go back and look at you know who's successful in the program yep. to make those decisions yeah no and, and more than anything else look i just want to banish from from the conversation this phrase that we at least used to hear all the time uh we know what works we just need the political will to do it and you say really <laughs> really no we need more humility we we don't know what i mean yes we we can go into individual schools that are getting great results uh we are learning about how to scale that up kip now has scaled you know to 120 schools that's great you know but that's still like what 10,000 20,000 kids do we know how to make this system work for 50 million kids no and we have a lot yet to learn okay topic number three Rumor has it that Congress is closing in on a decision regarding ESEA reauthorization. What are the pros and cons about what we know so far? Oh, it's not just a rumor, Clara. As we record, uh, the conference committee is getting started. It's it's pretty exciting. Uh, and f- for all the signals are that this thing is pretty much baked, right? That this uh, they, they've got a deal at the staff level. Uh, they are having a conference committee. I guess this almost never happens uh, before. In their opening comments, uh, people like Barbara Mikulski were saying, I didn't think I was going to get to see another one of these uh, before I left Congress or before I died. I mean, this is, uh, they're just beside themselves at the, you know, having regular process here in, in Congress. So that's all very good. And look, I, you know, we're feeling pretty good about this deal at Fordham. We think it is uh, very much in line with what we've been calling for, which is scaling back the federal role, uh, changing the role from being one that's very much heavy on, quote, accountability, and that's much more focused on, quote, transparency. It says we keep the testing, we keep the data, we disaggregate. States still have to turn all of that into some kind of uh, rating for schools, get that information out to parents. Uh, We think that is an appropriate thing for the federal government to require in return for 10% of the money, which is what they provide. But all the important decisions around how the accountability system works, whether to do teacher evaluations, how to intervene in low-performing schools, all of that goes back to the states, and we think that's where it should be. Uh, Lizette, do you agree? And you don't have to. I mean, it's more fun, frankly, if you disagree. So even if you do agree, yes. if you could disagree right now, I would really appreciate it. I will disagree on a few areas. <laughs> I um, – right? Do I even go the Common Core route? I'm like, oh, gosh. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I – Having experienced and been a part of the, from the early conversations around Common Core before it had a label and Mm -hmm. now watching it in full, full implementation and being on for, for four years, being on the side of working in a district, um, the conversations that people were having around curriculum were different. Mm -hmm. Um, they were tough, but they were different. Um, and, uh, I, you know, 
no one will ever agree. I think that everything in there is perfect, but I do worry that when we scale back that many different states um, function at different levels. Mm -hmm. And for the sake of allowing all students to have access to rigorous standards, I do worry that scaling back um, what type of standards a state adopts Mm -hmm. is going to kind of, I think, go back to producing some of the same results we did where you can see states that um, have very rigorous standards and very rigorous tests and some that don't. So you you are worried that some states will take the opportunity to, for example, ditch the Common Core or college and career ready standards or uh, go back to their easier tests and their cheaper tests. Now, look, that's all absolutely something that could happen. And, and that's why now the fight has to shift to the state level. You know, I am for one and more optimistic that the education reformers, or at least, you know, people who believe in high standards and for, and tougher tests and, and more transparent, honest information that we will be able to win these fights. We certainly have more of an infrastructure at the state level than we did 10 years ago. Groups like Maryland can here in Maryland and others that, you know, that, that, that wake up every day and, and try to fight these fights at the state level. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hopeful, but look, you know, it, it's also on us. We have to be able to make the case mm-hmm. to educators, to parents, to policymakers that uh, continuing with standards-based reform with high standards, with testing, with transparency, setting the bar high, all of that, uh, is working uh, and that it's important not mm-hmm. to back down. And if we can't make that argument, then shame on us. Right. right. I mean, this is the way democracy works. I was excited to see some of the efforts around accountability and pay more attention to yeah. the measuring of high achieving yes. students and advanced students, because yeah. for too long we have focused on the proficient and advanced and clustered that together as yeah. one measure. That's right. When we've lost out yeah. on who are these high achieving kids? How are they progressing? How many from different areas mm-hmm. of this country and of different income levels are yeah. in those buckets? And that is really, really important to continue yeah. to monitor. And, and, and frankly, you know, that that is another fight at the state level, right? I mean, I think that, yes. that states can make decisions with their accountability systems, like to use strong growth models or use mm-hmm. tests that can measure those higher levels of achievement uh, in order to, to create incentives for schools to pay mm-hmm. attention to those mm-hmm. high achievers. But that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to go going to do that. So it's on us again to make to make that case. <laughs> all right. That is all the time we've got for part in the Gadfly. Now it is time for everybody's favorite part of the show, including Lizette's. I can't wait to meet Amber. Amber's <laughs> Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. So, Lizette is, number one, a huge fan of yours, and number two, a huge Redskins fan. Woohoo! I know. Married one, so I've become one by marriage. We we just had to let go of RG3. It was hard, wasn't it? But I think it was the right decision. No, it was not. It was totally right. No, it wasn't hard for you. I really like the guy. I I really like the guy, too. Yeah, that's right. It's like closing down a charter school. You know, it's it's hard, but sometimes you just got to rip off the Band-Aid and start fresh. That last game, Cousins, just wow. It was. I was there. You were there in person? Oh, man. We just kept turning around and singing the song. I was like, now I finally know all the words. For all of us Redskins, get, it only takes one game for us to be like, oh, baby, we're back on We're time. back on board. I know. Feel the love, people. Feel the love. All right. This is not the Redskins podcast here. All right. We're going to talk about this study. All right. Yes. Uh, it examines whether information, and this is kind of wonky, and I'm going to do my best, but whether information supplied about a student's ability to, will help inform that student's decision to enroll in AP classes. Okay. So you're basically giving them a little bit more information about their ability. All right. Just stick with me. All right. The information signal is the AP p- 
potential message. So when they take the PSAT results and they get, and Lizette's shaking her head, she knows this. When they get the results back, the college board will put a little message on there. Okay. And the message will say, you know, you basically meet a certain cut point that they've, that they've determined. And the message will either say, congratulations, your score shows you have potential for success in at, le- in at least one AP course, mm-hmm. exclamation point. Okay. Or you get the message that says, be sure to talk to your counselor <laughs> about how to increase your preparedness. All right. So you get one right. or you get the other. All right. Yikes. So analysts looked at students in Oakland Technical High School who took the PSAT in 2013, and the sample comprised roughly 500 sophomores in this big, huge school in, in Oakland. Okay. okay. Uh, the intervention was as follows. Right before and after they received their PSAT results that included one of these messages I just told you about, um, they were giving a pre-post sur- pre-post survey that asked them how they perceive their academic abilities and their plans relative to attending college, the number of courses they plan to take, whether they're going to take the SAT and where they think they're going to pass the high school exit exam and graduate from high school. So like, okay. what do you think about your future? Okay. Mm-hmm. And they're asking them this right before they get their results, like in the classroom mm-hmm. and then right after they get their results. So okay. like, it's not a big window of time here, which mm-hmm. is a little bit problematic, mm-hmm. but anyway, um, analysts found that the AP signal. So this message contained information that led students to revise their beliefs mm-hmm. about their ability and future academic plans just mm-hmm. in that short amount of time mm-hmm. of receiving this message. Specifically, they find that the PSAT is a negative information shock, which is the word they use, a negative information shock on average, meaning students tended to adjust down their beliefs about their ability mm-hmm. once they got the news. So specifically, students who got good news increased their beliefs about their ability by 0.187 points on a five-point scale, mm-hmm. and those who got the bad news revised their beliefs down by 2.286 points. Mm-hmm. So they kind of, I think they read the tea leaves relative to talk to your counselor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, expectations around AP course enrollment were most impacted by the new information. So all those five things I said they asked them about. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that was the most acceptable to change was their AP course enrollment. So mm-hmm. students who up- upwardly revised their expectations uh, enrolled in more AP classes mm-hmm. compared to students who didn't revise their expectations. And finally, did they did this regression discontinuity design where they found that those that received the signal that you had the potential caused those students at the margin to enroll in approximately one more AP class the following semester and pass it. Mm. And they were then more likely to take and pass more AP exams. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of the domino effect. But the non-surveyed students at the margins did not show those patterns, suggesting that filling out the survey actually increased the salience of the information. So it's kind of like it it really, Mm -hmm. like when students kind of had to fill this thing out, it became more real to them. But the students near the margin who didn't get that you know, nice fuzzy message mm-hmm. uh, were discouraged from actually taking the AP courses, even though they were nearly identical in ability to the other kids who got mm-hmm. the other message. So, I mean, the bottom line is there's both an upside and a downside mm-hmm. to this news based on whether you get good news or bad news. So sure. one answer is don't give the bad news. Don't give the bad right. news. I mean, I mean, you get, they get the <laughs> score report, but right. don't have a message on there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but, but what else? I mean, certainly look, this is part of the college board and other, other organizations efforts to try to use those PS. SAT scores to identify kids who could succeed in AP and let them know about it. So that's all good. It's all good. We want to do that. Absolutely. It's tricky. Do we want to let those other kids know the sobering news? I mean, on the one hand, maybe you do, right? Yeah. I mean, this is tough. Look, we get into these issues with remedial education in high school, in higher ed. I mean, are we doing young people a a favor when we encourage them to give it a try, even though we have good evidence that that they're going to fail, you know, that they just, and they're going to fail because they're just way too far behind. You know, one thing, if we could help them catch up, 
But if we're just, you know, I know, of course, the the old teacher in me is like thinking, oh, how sad, like you give them, they just get this message and now they fill out the same survey and they just thought they were going to do all these great things. And now they're like, eh, maybe not. My life is taking a different course. Yeah. 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 The school that my program is housed in Baltimore Polytechnic Institute Mm -hmm. um, was actually notified, you know, noticed as one of the higher performing students on the recent park results. Um, But in terms of advanced placement courses, um, the school was really persistent around trying to make sure that students who took AP courses were the right fit for those courses and used the AP potential as a strong Mm -hmm. indicator as to whether they put students in those courses. And it's been really successful. I think it's been able to help students be successful mm-hmm. once but do you think the it. kids who didn't get that lovely message were discouraged or do you think they went ahead and tried it anyway i sure i don't i didn't even know them about the yeah. message yeah. so yeah. i'd be curious now yeah. to see if there were students that paid attention to that well and it's tricky right some people would say you know maybe jay matthews would say, oh that's too much gatekeeping you know we shouldn't be keeping those marginal kids out um on the other hand you know, if they're not going to be successful, if there's potential that they might slow down the other kids who really have the better shot at being successful. But but it does sound like the school certainly is trying to be aggressive about telling young people who are ready, hey, we want you in these AP classes. Right. And and it can't be just a letter home, right? I mean, the survey was one way to get people right, to focus to really on it. really drive it home. Right. I would, it makes me think, Amber, I would love for us to do a study. Uh, I, I've always been curious about how parents are responding to these test score results, mm-hmm. if at all, mm-hmm. you know, and to do something similar. Like, survey parents, what do you think about you know how do you think your child uh, is doing are they on track for college and career mm-hmm. take the survey then hand them the, the results from park <laughs> from your <kid>. right <laughs> and then do the survey again and uh, go, like right? my kid's not cracked up uh, i don't know i don't know. know how do they respond are when they're they gonna be like this test you know stinks that's probably it. what they, yeah. will say. they will say that will be not, i yeah. think so i mean i'd be curious right, right? yeah yeah but the yeah. thing is just the act of having them do the survey would be different from in the real yeah. world where i think a lot of parents are going to get these things in the mail yeah Maybe not even open them or open them and like be totally perplexed by what it is mm-hmm. and, you know, just not worry about it. Right. Or they'll ask their t- kid's teacher and the teacher will say, oh, don't worry about it. Is this the first year or don't, you know, right. I mean, I don't know that it's going to succeed to overcome their belief. If they believe their kid's doing fine right. and they should, why wouldn't they? They've been getting reports from the school for, you know, 10 years that their kid's doing great. Right. Why are they going to believe I mean, this piece of paper telling them that, that they're was not? what was a little bit problematic about how the study was designed, right? Because the, just the act of filling out the survey is almost nudging parents, I yeah. mean, nudging the kids to alter, yeah. you know, thinking. It's, yeah, it's like, yeah. oh. Because well, why are we oh, going to have you do it again? Am I supposed to feel bad about myself? It's a little bit problematic. I don't know how you get around that, but yeah. It could have been that the intervention itself was, you know, what was what was skewing the results, right? Now, see, I know how you get around this, Amber. It's easy. You you track the kids on social media and you you evaluate the emotional content of of their of their messages before and after the news. <laughs> oh, that's okay, right. nobody uh, nobody had any problems with that kind of research design, would they? <laughs> not not at all. It's amazing what you can find out in a minute. Hey, about what hey students do. I'm telling you, why not? No, we just. No. Plug right into and the NSA. And, and we social just, media is so scary, right? Like I was looking for a, a chandelier for my dining mm-hmm. room the other day. And, and yeah, and then all of a sudden I get all these chandelier ads on Facebook, right? Because uh, I was on like these uh, other uh, websites, nothing to do they with will Facebook. never leave you alone. But it's scary. Yeah. Scary. Anyway, I digress. Uh, <laughs> yes. All right. I'm telling you, social media, Amber, someday we're going to crack this. We're we going to figure this out. We are. As well, a research I, tool. As a research tool. It's, I, I, so much potential. Right. I, I think it's so important that we do continue to identify those students and tell them that they are capable of advanced placement courses. I think all too often 
a busy single yeah. mom, dad at home, mm-hmm. um, sometimes may not even realize yeah. that their child has high potential. Yeah. And if it weren't for that report telling that child, they may not know. Yeah. That is Good a great point. way to end. Okay. Yeah. Now, Lizette, you've been listening. You know how we end this show. Let's see if you get this right. We say that is all the time we have for this week's Education Gabfly Show. Till next week. I'm Lizette Morris. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Very nicely done. Signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.